Part 6, Section 8 of The Rescue by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part 6, Section 8. And now, stoical in the cold and darkness of his regained life, Lingard had to listen to the voice of Wasab telling him Jaffir's story. The old serang's face expressed a profound dejection, and there was an infinite sadness in the flowing murmur of his words. Yes, by Allah, they were all there, that tyrannical Tenga, noisy like a fool, the Raja Hasim, a ruler without a country, Daman, the wandering chief, and the three Pangarans of the sea robbers. They came on board boldly, for Tuan Jorgensen had given them permission, and their talk was that you, Tuan, were a willing captive in Bellarab's stockade. They said they had waited all night for a message of peace from you or from Balarab. But there was nothing, and with the first sign of day they put out on the lagoon to make friends with Tuan Jorgensen, for they said you, Tuan, were as if you had not been, possessing no more power than a dead man, the mere slave of these strange white people and Balarab's prisoner. Thus Tenga talked. God had taken from him all wisdom and all fear. And then he must have thought he was safe while Raja Hasim and the Lady Amada were on board. I tell you, they sat there in the midst of your enemies, captive. The Lady Yamada, with her face covered, mourned to herself. The Raja Hasim made a sign to Jafir, and Jafir came to stand by his side and talk to his lord. The main hatch was open, and many of the Elanans crowded there to look down at the goods that were inside the ship. They had never seen so much loot in their lives. Jafir and his lord could hear plainly Tuan Jorgensen and Tenga talking together. Tenga discoursed loudly, and his words were the words of a doomed man, for he was asking Tuan Jorgensen to give up the arms and everything that was on board the Emma to himself and to Daman. And then he said, We shall fight Balarab and make friends with these strange white people by behaving generously to them and letting them sail away unharmed to their own country. We don't want them here. You, Tuan Jorgensen, are the only white man I care for. They heard Tuan Jorgensen say to Tenga, Now you have told me everything there is in your mind. You had better go ashore with your friends and return tomorrow. And Tenga asked, Why? Would you fight me tomorrow rather than live many days in peace with me? And he laughed and slapped his thigh. And Tuan Jorgensen answered, No, I won't fight you. But even a spider will give the fly time to say its prayers. Tuan Jorgensen's voice sounded very strange and louder than ever anybody had heard it before. Oh, Rajalat, Jafir and the white man had been waiting, too, all night for some sign from you, a shot fired or a signal fire lighted to strengthen their hearts. There had been nothing. Raja Hasim, whispering, ordered Jafir to take the first opportunity to leap overboard and take to you his message of friendship and goodbye. Did the Raja and Jafir know what was coming? Who can tell? But what else could they see than calamity for all Wajo men, whatever Tuan Jorgensen had made up his mind to do? 
Jafia prepared to obey his lord, and yet with so many enemies' boats in the water he did not think he would ever reach the shore. And as to yourself, he was not at all sure that you were still alive. But he said nothing of this to his Raja. Nobody was looking their way. Jafia pressed his lord's hand to his breast and waited his opportunity. The fog began to blow away, and presently everything was disclosed to the sight. Jorgensen was on his feet. He was holding a lighted cigar between his fingers. Tenga was sitting in front of him on one of the chairs the white people had used. His followers were pressing round him, with Daman and Sentot, who were muttering incantations, and even the Panjerans had moved closer to the hatchway. Jafir's opportunity had come, but he lingered by the side of his Raja. In the clear air the sun shone with great force. Tuan Jorgensen looked once more towards Bellarab's stockade, or Rajhalat. But there was nothing there not even a flag displayed that had not been there before. Jafir looked that way too, and as he turned his head he saw Tuan Jorgensen in the midst of twenty spear-blades that could in an instant have driven into his breast, put the cigar in his mouth and jump down the hatchway. At that moment Raja Hasim gave Jafir a push toward the side, and Jafir leapt overboard. He was still in the water when all the world was darkened round him as if the life of the sun had been blown out of it in a crash. A great wave came along and washed him on shore, while pieces of wood, iron and the limbs of torn men were splashing round him in the water. He managed to crawl out of the mud. Something had hit him while he was swimming, and he thought he would die. But life stirred in him. He had a message for you. For a long time he went on crawling under the big trees, on his hands and knees, for there is no rest for a messenger till a message is delivered. At last he found himself on the left bank of the creek, and still he felt life stir in him. So he started to swim across, for if you were in this world, you were on the other side. While he swam, he felt his strength abandoning him. He managed to scramble onto a drifting log and lay on it like one who is dead, till we pulled him into one of our boats. Wasab ceased. It seemed to Lingard that it was impossible for mortal man to suffer more than he suffered in the succeeding moment of silence, crowded by the mute images as of universal destruction. He felt himself gone to pieces, as though the violent expression of Jorgensen's intolerable mistrust of the life of men had shattered his soul, leaving his body robbed of all power of resistance and of all fortitude, a prey forever to infinite remorse and endless regrets. Leave me, what's up, he said. They are all dead, but I would sleep. Wasab raised his dumb old eyes to the white man's face. Duan, it is necessary that you should hear Jafir, he said patiently. Is he going to die? 
asked Lingard in a low, cautious tone, as though he were afraid of the sound of his own voice. Who can tell? Wasab's voice sounded more patient than ever. There is no wound on his body, but, Otwan, he does not wish to live. Abandoned by his god, muttered Lingard to himself. Wasab waited a little before he went on. And, Tuan, he has a message for you. Of course. Well, I don't want to hear it. It is from those who will never speak to you again, Wasab persevered sadly. It is a great trust, a Raja's own words. It is difficult for Jafir to die. He keeps on muttering about a ring that was for you, and that he let pass out of his care. It was a great talisman. Yes, but it did not work this time. And if I go and tell Jafir why, he will be able to tell his Raja, O Wasab, since you say that he is going to die. I wonder where they will meet, he muttered to himself. Once more, Wasab raised his eyes to Lingard's face. Paradise is the lot of all true believers, he whispered, firm in his simple faith. The man who had been undone by a glimpse of paradise exchanged a profound look with the old Malay. Then he got up. On his passage to the main hatchway, the commander of the brig met no one on the decks, as if all mankind had given him up except the old man who preceded him, and that other man dying in the deepening twilight who was awaiting his coming. Below, in the light of the hatchway, he saw a young Kalash with a broad yellow face and his wiry hair sticking up in stiff wisps through the folds of his headkerchief, holding an earthenware water jar to the lips of Jafir, extended on his back on a pile of mats. A languid roll of the already glazed eyeballs, a mere stir of black and white in the gathering dusk, showed that the faithful messenger of princes was aware of the presence of the man who had been so long known to him and his people as the King of the Sea. Lingard knelt down close to Jafir's head, which rolled a little from side to side and then became still, staring at a beam of the upper deck. Lingard bent his ear to the dark lips. Deliver your message, he said in a gentle tone. The Raja wished to hold your hand once more, whispered Jafir, so faintly that Lingard had to guess the words rather than hear them. I was to tell you, he went on and stopped suddenly. What were you to tell me? To forget everything, said Jafir, with a loud effort, as if beginning a long speech. After that he said nothing more, till Lingard murmured, And the Lady Amada? Jafir collected all his strength. She hoped no more, he uttered distinctly. The order came to her while she mourned, failed, apart. I didn't even see her face. Lingard swayed over the dying man so heavily that Wasab, standing nearby, hastened to catch him by the shoulder. Jafir seemed unaware of everything and went on staring at the beam. "'Can you hear me, O Jafir?' asked Lingard. 
I hear. I never had the ring. Who could bring it to me? We gave it to the white woman. May Jahannam be her lot. No, it shall not be my lot, said Lingard with despairing force, while Wasab raised both his hands in dismay. For listen, Jaffir, if she had given the ring to me, it would have been to one that was dumb, deaf, and robbed of all courage. It was impossible to say whether Jaffir had heard. He made no sound. There was no change in his awful stare but his prone body moved under the cotton sheet as if to get further away from the white man. Lingard got up slowly and, making a sign to Wasab to remain where he was, went up on deck without giving another glance to the dying man. Again it seemed to him that he was pacing the quarter-deck of a deserted ship. The mulatto's steward, watching through the crack of the pantry door, saw the captain stagger into the cuddy and fling to the door behind him with a crash. For more than an hour nobody approached that closed door, till Carter, coming down the companion stairs, spoke without attempting to open it. "'Are you there, sir?' The answer, "'You may come in,' comforted the young man by its strong resonance. He went in. "'Well?' Jaffir is dead this moment. I thought you would want to know. Lingard looked persistently at Carter, thinking that now Jaffir was dead, there was no one left on the empty earth to speak to him a word of reproach, no one to know the greatness of his intentions, the bond of fidelity between him and Hasim and Imada, the depth of his affection for those people the earnestness of his visions and the unbounded trust that was his reward. By the mad scorn of Jorgensen flaming up against the life of men, all this was as if it had never been. It had become a secret locked up in his own breast forever. Tell Wasab to open one of the long cloth bales in the hold, Mr. Carter, and to give the crew a cotton sheet to bury him decently according to their faith. Let it be done tonight. They must have the boats, too. I suppose they will want to take him on the sandbank. Yes, sir, said Carter. Let them have what they want. Spades, torches, wasab will chant the right words. Paradise is the lot of all true believers. Do you understand me, Mr. Carter? Paradise. I wonder what it will be for him unless he gets messages to carry through the jungle, avoiding ambushes, swimming in storms and knowing no rest, he won't like it. Carter listened with an unmoved face. It seemed to him that the captain had forgotten his presence. And all the time he will be sleeping on that sandbank, Lingard began again, sitting in his old place under the gilt thunderbolts, suspended over his head with his elbows on the table and his hands to his temples. If they want a board to set up at the grave, let them have a piece of an oak plank. It'll stay there till the next monsoon, perhaps. Carter felt uncomfortable before that tense stare which just missed him and in that confined cabin seemed awful in its piercing and far-off expression. But as he had not been dismissed, he did not like to go away. Everything will be done as you wish it, sir, he said. I suppose the yacht will be leaving the first thing tomorrow morning, sir? If she doesn't, we must give her a solid shot or two to liven her up, eh, Mr. Carter? Carter did not know whether to smile or to look horrified. 
In the end he did both, but as to saying anything he found it impossible. But Lingard did not expect an answer. I believe you're going to stay with me, Mr Carter? I told you, sir, I'm your man if you want me. The trouble is, Mr Carter, that I am no longer the man to whom you spoke that night in Karamata. Neither am I, sir, in a manner of speaking. Lingard, relaxing the tenseness of his stare, looked at the young man thoughtfully. After all, it is the brig that will want you. She will never change. The finest craft afloat in these seas. She will carry me about as she did before, but... He unclasped his hands, made a sweeping gesture. Carter gave all his naive sympathy to that man, who had certainly rescued the white people, but seemed to have lost his own soul in the attempt. Carter had heard something from Wasab. He had made out enough of this story from the old Serang's pidgin English to know that the captain's native friends, one of them a woman, had perished in a mysterious catastrophe. But the why of it and how it came about remained still quite incomprehensible to him. Of course, a man like the captain would feel terribly cut up. You'll be soon yourself again, sir, he said in the kindest possible tone. With the same simplicity, Lingard shook his head. He was thinking of the dead Jaffir with his last message delivered and untroubled now by all these matters of the earth. He had been ordered to tell him to forget everything. Lingard had an inward shudder. In the dismay of his heart, he might have believed his brig to lie under the very wing of the angel of desolation. So oppressive, so final and hopeless seemed the silence in which he and Carter looked at each other wistfully. Lingard reached for a sheet of paper amongst several lying on the table, took up a pen, hesitated a moment, and then wrote, Meet me at daybreak on the sandbank. He addressed the envelope to Mrs. Travers, Yacht Hermit, and pushed it across the table. Send this on board the schooner at once, Mr. Carter. Wait a moment. When our boats shove off for the sandbank, have the forecastle gun fired. I want to know when that dead man has left the ship. He sat alone, leaning his head on his hand, listening, listening endlessly for the report of the gun. Would it never come? When it came at last, muffled, distant, with a slight shock through the body of the brig, he remained still with his head leaning on his hand, but with a distinct conviction, with an almost physical certitude, that under the cotton sheet shrouding the dead man, something of himself, too, had left the ship. End of Part 6, Section 8